0: This is episode 145 of the Swallow Your Pride podcast, and we have two wonderful guests today. Our first guest is Maurice Goodwin. He's a speech-language pathologist and singer, now living in Houston, Texas. Professionally, he specializes in the evaluation and treatment of the singing voice and voice disorders at the Texas Voice Center. Following his undergraduate studies in music performance at Shenandoah University, he completed his graduate work in speech pathology at the University of Pittsburgh. His background as a performer and speech pathologist led him to complete training in the treatment of singers, actors, teachers, and other occupational voice users with voice problems. He is passionate about vocal health education and the intersections of identity and voice. And Maurice is one of our incredible voice mentors in the Medislp Collective, and he just blows me away with his wisdom and knowledge. And our other guest is Lauren Sharp Payne. Lauren is an ASHA certified speech language pathologist who currently resides in Hampton, Virginia. She received her bachelor's degree in speech language pathology in 2014 and her master's degree in speech language pathology in 2016 from Old Dominion University in Norfolk, Virginia. She has experience working in pediatric private practice, outpatient rehabilitation, and inpatient rehab. Her interests include dysphagia rehabilitation, aphasia, as well as the application of neuroplasticity principles for remediation of various neurogenic speech, language, and swallowing disorders. And if you're not following Lauren on Instagram, she's at speak.fromtheheart, and she's doing some amazing work with mentorship as well. So um, this is an awesome conversation. You guys, I'm really happy. We are having this conversation. Um, you know, I asked them what they wanted to talk about and they said, we want to talk about being black in the field of speech language pathology. Um, so this is their platform. And I know I learned a lot. I learned a ton from listening to them. They're incredible people. Um, and I just I hope you find this conversation as valuable as I did. I will also note that my audio stinks during this episode. I don't know what happened, um, but I apologize. The editor did as good as he can to to try to make it sound as best as he could. But you don't have to send me messages. that my audio stunk during this episode. We know it did. I have it fixed for the next episode. So so my apologies. But um, very important conversation we're having. We're going to continue to have this conversation. I recorded. About five different episodes this month um, with speech pathologists of color and, and I'm really happy to continue this dialogue with everybody. So um, I hope you enjoy. Thank you, Maurice and Lauren. You guys are awesome. Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders and I know firsthand how much confusing and conflicting information there is out there about how we assess and treat swallowing disorders. This podcast is all about bringing everyone together, getting on the same page, being open to new ideas, and using evidence-based treatment strategies for our patients with dysphagia. So let's get into it. Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely.
1: Lauren, please tell me you're drinking water.
0: Human I am. The
1: voice person is chugging in one hand coffee <laughs> and the other hand
2: Oh my gosh. That's like a double negative for, for you, <laughs>
3: Maurice.
1: I stopped caring about my health <laughs> 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 when I chose to do this.
3: All right. Okay. Hello, you guys. Hey. Lauren and Maurice, thank you so much for joining me today uh, for this conversation. And just um, Lauren, tell the people a little bit about who you are.
2: Yeah, so I'm Lauren. I am a speech-language pathologist practicing in Virginia. I am Speak from the Heart on Instagram. Most people probably know me by that name. And I'm just a really big advocate for diversity in the field of speech-language pathology. And I'm an outpatient rehab SLP.
1: Cool. My name is Maurice Goodwin. I am a speech-language pathologist currently practicing in Houston, Texas. Um, And I primarily work in voice and upper airway disorders, um, have been doing this for a little while, background in like performance, singing, so we do a lot of that work. Uh, at my current position and kind of similar to Lauren, it's it's kind of hard to be a non white SLP and not think about diversity and the ways in which it impacts our field and certainly our patients. All
3: right, so that's a great segue into what we're going to talk about today, Maurice. So we want to leave right in with some people we're going
1: to talk about? Yeah, so I think we are just kind of chatting about not only our experiences. But our you know our interactions, what we're seeing in the field, um, as far as speech pathology goes,
3: from a provider yeah, and I think, provider, know, thing, yeah, and, and I think so, sorry to cut you off this, you're
1: good.
3: you know one thing i I would love for you guys to talk about really is like how can we help you know like what what yeah. don't what don't we know when I say we as I, I'm a white woman, you know and, I, and mm-hmm. I can't possibly know what what is you know I think I know what's going on, but I can't possibly know how you guys feel so. Please tell us how we can help and how in our field we can help to promote more diversity and how we can be more um, helpful to our patients, to our colleagues. And, and that's really what I want this conversation to be. So, i already yeah. cut you off right?
1: oh, Go ahead. No, you're good. Lauren, you take it.
2: <laughs> okay, no pressure. <laughs> um, I guess, like, I know when you reached out to both of us about doing this podcast, the first thing that popped into my head was the beginning of my journey as a black SLP student. So I know in undergrad, there were, I would say maybe 10 of us as far as black students in the program. So for me, it was like, oh, you know, it's pretty diverse. It's a good mix. When I got to grad school, I was one of three black students out of about 30 students. And I remember the first day I was like, do I really belong here? Like, am I the odd one out? Do I deserve to be here? So there was a lot of self-doubt like my whole first year of grad school. And I think that probably happens to a lot of black students is that's where you're first introduced to, wow, this is really a predominantly white field. Like I'm probably gonna be the only one when I start working, you know, wherever you work, whatever setting you're in. But I think for me, that's when it really opened my eyes to, the lack of diversity in this field and what I could start doing about it, even as a graduate student. Um, So I know for me, I founded an Imbosla affiliate at my college, which is the National Black Association for Speech, Language, and Hearing. And I remember getting a lot of pushback at first because people are like, well, why are you starting a Black organization? Like, why, why is it Black? What if we did like a white organization? And I'm like, you're missing the point. It's not about black and white or separating us. It's about providing a safe space for the three of us in this uh, in this program. It's about providing a safe space for the minority in this field so we can feel like we can do it and we can be successful. So, you know, I just feel like I'm here to represent and I'm here to continue to inspire future black SLPs. Like you can do it, you can make it, you can be successful in this field. So... That's like my short version of why this is so important to me. Yeah, yeah, no, and thank you so much for explaining that, Lauren. I've heard that before. You know, I've mm-hmm. heard, well, why did why did they
3: go and make their own organization? Like, why right, mm-hmm. can't we all just be together? Why do we have Asha? You know, and, and right. I know obviously there's been issues with Asha, and I'll let you guys talk about that some more too. But thank you for explaining that beautifully, Warren. And yeah, yeah. I mean, everybody wants to feel welcome and feel supported, and, and I'm so glad that you were able to create that space. Yeah.
1: I know my experiences in graduate school were similar to Lauren's and to many other people in that I went to, I I really enjoyed my graduate program. I was the only brown SLP student, black speech pathology student. And then there were other people of color within the class and other like two or three total in a class of almost about 40, I think it was 37 students. Um, So that's like pretty limited exposure. <laughs> and I always felt so much pressure in graduate school to speak on behalf of everyone that's brown. Um, I, You know, my experience as a black person, I did grow up um, low income um, in like an area of high poverty in a single parent household. And I always felt like, you know, when you when you speak about these statistics of these inner city kids in poverty, they're just less smart. Right? They know less words. They have lower chances of getting into graduate school, and that narrative, even as a graduate student, I felt like it was me. And then you start to think, well, I don't belong here. Literally, statistically, I'm not supposed to be here because we do that. That is what we do, right? We talk about language. We talk about the ways in which single parent households don't talk to their children as much or don't read their children books. And I'm like, well, my parents didn't do that to me. Does that mean that I I can't be smart? I can't be this or that? I had a lot of trouble in graduate school dealing with all of those things. I had trouble with being black in graduate school. I went, I was living in Pittsburgh at the time. um, And I remember an experience where I was getting done. I was doing a pediatric feeding uh, externship at Children's Hospital Pittsburgh. And I went to go get on the bus afterwards. I was in like sweatpants and a t shirt and had like a gym bag with me. And I go to get on the bus, and, like, I remember distinctly, (laughs) this woman was on the bus um, who, like, quickly moved away from where I was, and it felt like my presence made her uncomfortable, right? I mean, we're on a bus, and buses are, like, can be uncomfortable places to begin with, public transportation in general, (laughs) as someone who lives in Houston. Um, but And I didn't know what to do with that. I didn't know how to not be threatening to someone because of like the color of my skin right and i was like this woman knows nothing about me she knows she doesn't know that i just like held a three-week-old baby and was trying to feed this baby like that's what i was doing and that's like where i'm i'm training to like help people and to do this but someone doesn't know that and they just judge you based off of how you look right and i'm sure lauren can also maybe corroborate uh, you know, you have these stories of patients treating you differently than they treat your supervisor or other students. And and you're left wondering, is it because I'm black?
2: Yeah.
1: And it's hard not to think that when it feels like it's not only happening within the graduate program, but you're also dealing with all this other stuff going on.
2: I definitely agree. And I hate I I hate that H- worries. Yeah. One of the kindest, smartest humans on this earth. So <laughs> no, I hate you that. really are. I, I, <laughs> Yeah, I think um, kind of piggybacking off of what you said, Maurice, you know, you get those moments sometimes where like you're on a bus or even like if you're at the grocery store and there's an older white lady and she like clenches your purse when you come next to her and you're like, but I don't even want that purse. It's not even cute. (laughs) Uh, Like, I don't understand. (laughs) But it's it's little things like that, though. And like, especially when I got older, like coming into my teenage years, that used to really bother me. Um, And especially like in high school and just early in college, that used to really bother me. But now, I mean, it's just like, it is what it is. And it's unfortunate, but we do often, we're judged because of how we look or, you know, the way that our hair looks or the color of our skin, or even the way that we talk. If we use AAE, then we're automatically judged to be, you know, less intelligent or, you know, how'd you even make it into graduate school if you're talking like that? So there's just a lot of judgment and bias with, you know, the way that we look, the way that we talk, the way that we act. And it's just, I wish it wasn't like that. I just wish that there was something we could do to help break those stigmas.
3: I'm, yeah. I'm so glad you brought that, the AAE up, when I, when I did my CF, I actually did my CF in the Indianapolis Public Schools. And they we had to do a diversity training, and they taught us about AAE. And I, I will be honest, when they, were, when they were, you know, they're saying it, if someone, if the word is ask, and someone says ask, that's acceptable, and you, it's not a speech or language impairment, that is their dialect, and that's okay, and I remember there was, like, so many words, that I was, I had no idea, like, I'll be honest, I had no idea, you know, and, and I took that training, and I was so grateful for that training, and then I got talking to some other of my friends in my grad program, and I'm like, guys, I just finished this training, I had no idea this was thing, and they're like, what are you talking about, you know, and, and then now hearing you say that, I've heard a couple of other people say that to me. I'm like, how are we not talking about this? Yeah. It's like, how are we not teaching people about this? How are we diagnosing these kids with language and language, you know, for, for speaking their own dialect? Like, that's that's. Hilarious. Yeah.
1: One of the difficult things when, like, considering, because I know this conversation is probably going to segue from, like, you know, being a graduate student to being a clinician to like at large, there are so many things to talk about. I, I had experiences where in graduate school. So all of that was going on, you know, I'm in child language where I'm like, am I this kid that has a language disorder? And then actually you know, I'm having these experiences like out in public. And there was a larger national conversation. This was around when black lives matter was starting. And I was like, I mean, I mean, I believe that, but can I even post that? Can I be that online? You know, I'm just trying to fit in and be a part. And, um, I've had a lot of questions and we've had a lot of conversations on how can um, white people be allies, right? And how can they be helpful? And I just wanted to offer my experience in this um, because I felt like it was a positive one. (laughs) And I know that there are not many positive stories um, in this area, but I immediately went to um, my graduate program and some of the graduate program directors. um, And I sat down in front of them and I was like, I feel like I don't belong here. Like, I remember crying, like, in front of some of these older white women who ran our program. I was like, I don't belong here. I feel crazy. There's too much going on. I don't know how to just be me. Like, I don't I don't know how to just think about speech pathology because I have so much else that feels like it's crowding my brain, right? And a lot of it has to do with not being white <laughs> yeah. in a space that's built for whiteness. So... All of them, I thought they did a wonderful job. And I can look back on it now and see how helpful it was. They all validated my experience. They didn't question it. They didn't ask me if I was seeing things wrong. They didn't ask me to see it from someone else's experience. They said, wow, that must be really, really difficult. Hmm. And each one of them, I like remember where I was sitting. I remember like how the sun was shining. I remember like the time of day because that's like the place that I was in. They, each, there was two or three, every one of them pulled out their cell phone and said, well, you know, I'm not a black speech pathologist, but I do know this person, right? Or I know this person here, take their number. I'm sure they would love to talk with you. Um, I had a professor who reached out to a friend of hers, like in the diversity and inclusion office who ended up being an amazing relationship for me. I ended up, you know, speaking at some of the things that they've done to attract more students um, of color to the school that I was at. And I felt like, Of course, could the department at large be a better and safer space for students who aren't white? Yes. And that is a larger conversation we have to have in speech pathology, given our rates of diversity kind of across the board. But I felt like those people, those professors did what, did the most natural thing, right? The thing that we just ask people to do. Yeah, I hear you, I see you. And if there's any way that I can be of help, let me do that, right? Here's some people that I know, because I'm not black. Right. I, I, I'm listening and I can hear what you're saying and I can do my best to help in any way that I can. But here, here are some people that I know who would love to talk with you about this, who would love to work with you about this. And I, it like changed the game for me. It didn't make me feel like I couldn't say that, or I couldn't be that, or I couldn't, I couldn't speak up about the things bothering me.
2: That's amazing.
1: Shout out to, uh, Cheryl Messick, and Paula Leslie oh. <laughs> at the University of Pittsburgh.
2: <laughs> Wonderful people,
1: yeah. Yes. <laughs> so you were a
2: pit guy, Maurice. <laughs>
1: yes.
2: Cool. That's amazing. I think my experience was a, a little bit different. Um, I won't say like I wasn't supported. I feel like my professors and like the program director, my clinical supervisors were all, they were all really supportive of us clinically. And my first semester in grad school, my clinical supervisor, Supervisor was black. And so I just, I mean, obviously felt really drawn to her. Um, But I know, and I don't know if this was something I did intentionally, but I was almost like a loner in grad school. Like I didn't really study with any of the other students. Um, I wasn't like invited to the outings that they had and things like that. And Again, it may have been something I was doing subconsciously because I'm like, well, I'm only, I'm one of the only black students here. So they probably don't even want to hang out with me. So I'm just not even going to put myself out there to try and be invited. So I spent pretty much my entire graduate career, like alone, studying alone and just being by myself, which wasn't necessarily a bad thing because I feel like I'm naturally introverted in it anyway, but. I do feel like if I could go back and do it all again, I wish I would have been more vocal about how I was feeling, especially like with my program director and with the um, the girls that were in my cohort, just telling them how I was feeling, being a Black SLP student, and you know how certain things that they said and that they did made me feel. And I wish I could go back in time and do that over. But I think at the time too, I was just nervous. I'm like, you know, what they judge me, or what the program director wants to kick me out, or give me a lower grade, or you know, not let me get my license or something like that. But I think sometimes there is that level of fear because there is this person who's in a position of power who is typically white and you don't want to say the wrong thing or say that you've been offended because of how they may feel. And I think that narrative also needs to change. I think students of color, black students need to be able to speak up for themselves in these programs, especially you know, if they've been offended or if something's not going the way that they think it should go based on the color of their skin. So, I feel like that just went all over the place too. I'm sorry, that just didn't connect at all. My topic maintenance <laughs> is horrible. It, no, Lauren, that, that was beautiful. That, I mean, that was,
3: <laughs> that was wonderful. You know, and, I, and I think, I mean, I'll put myself out on the limb here and just say as a as a white woman, like I, I would think, you know, Maurice, I love that you said that they just listened to you and they just validated what you were feeling. you know. And I think of what you, know, what you said like that just breaks my heart to think you've had all these feelings inside that you were thinking this way, you know, and, and I, it sucks that you would have to even just have these conversations. And I, you know, I, hate think that you would have to think that way. And, and I'm glad you guys are, are having these conversations with us now, because I, I know that this has opened so many people's eyes. I think, I think the big thing that really has, has, has opened my eyes a lot in the last few weeks is, is. You can be not racist, but are you anti-racist? You know, I would say there's no way I'm racist. You know, I I love everybody. I'll have a conversation with anybody, but are you anti-racist? Are you sticking up for them? You know, Lauren, what what can I do to help you? You know, tell me how you're feeling. You know, and and that's where I am today. I
1: I think one of the difficulties specifically in speech pathology and issues that we have in graduate programs is that it is I think speech pathology as a whole we're kind people we have to be people people even if you're like the researcher <laughs> speech pathologist like you're people people because that's what we do we work in communication most of us are, have really great pragmatic skills most of us are no, <laughs> most um, um but I think what's difficult for um white people to understand is that racism is very systemic
3: yes mm-hmm. yeah.
1: and it is not just a choice right, right. If you can make you even as a cohort and as a faculty group can make the decision to not be racist and you are still working within a system that is racist <laughs> by nature and excludes groups of people based on where they come from what they look like their access to money, their access to education that is built into our profession and built into our graduate programs. I think about that all the time. I think about, like it does not escape me that I work for a hospital system that takes very specific types of insurance. And if you don't have that, you have to pay cash to see me and I'm offering a service to help people, right? That is what we do. We're part of a business and, and our graduate programs reflect that. Mm-hmm. And so you can be not racist, right? And still work and live within a system that excludes people. And I think we have to actually believe that, one, <laughs> recognize that, and then actively work to change that rather than just say, well, I'm not racist, so we're good.
2: Yeah, yeah definitely. We have to put the action behind the words, um, especially now, and especially because all of this is coming up right now, I think it's just not enough to, like you said, say I'm not racist or, you know, um, I have lots of black friends or I work with lots of black people. It's putting the action behind that, you know, being able to defend us, being able to ask questions when you don't know what to say or how to respond. It's okay to ask questions. Um, And I think the whole term of like cultural humility has been going around too and being okay with the fact that you might not know everything or you might not know exactly what to say to your black colleague or your black student or you know, whoever it is, but being okay with the fact that you can ask a question, you can have that conversation, and that helps with some of the change, too.
1: I think one of the really cool things that I've seen as a result of this, specifically with graduate programs, and thank you to the SLPs of Color Instagram page, who've been posting some really cool resources and also student and clinician and professor experiences, and they kind of directed my attention towards the University of Minnesota. Like not only their statements, but the plans that they've posted to, to what seems to be <laughs> significant change um, to not only their graduate program, but the admissions process, supporting undergraduate students. i um, trying to dive, invest in recruiting students who aren't white women you know, that's Mm -hmm. because it has to be intentional. And this is something that I even had to learn myself. You know, I still, even as a black male experience male privilege, right? And that also has to be something that we recognize, right? And that I was treated differently in my program and with professors and with patients and with other clinicians, because I was a male, right? And you know, when you're in the hospital, you're a male walking around with a white coat, people assume you're a doctor. If you're a woman walking around in scrubs, they like might assume you're there to like clean a room. Like we have to understand those dynamics to like actually deal with some of the issues. And um, as a speech pathologist and a male SOP, like your attention to diversity and your attention to, to exploring and exposing yourselves to something that is not your experience has to be intentional, or you will unintentionally only surround yourself with the things that you believe and what looks like you. Right. And Mm -hmm. so it would be really easy for me to only work with people that think the same way that I do from people that come from a similar background as me. um, It takes intentionality to find people to collaborate, to find people to work with. It takes a graduate program being intentional about recruiting diversity, or they will continue to recruit and do the same. Right.
3: Insanity. That's
1: mm-hmm. <laughs> what it feels like sometimes. <laughs>
3: yes.
2: Were you the only male in your program?
1: There was three of us.
2: Okay. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Yeah, it was all three out of
1: 37. Nailed it.
2: <laughs> yeah, it's, I don't know. It's just, I, uh, go ahead.
1: Nope.
2: <laughs> I don't even know what I was going to say. I just, um, I'm kind of transitioning here. I know we were talking about graduate school, but I'm even thinking now just in the working world. I know right now at my clinic, I'm the only black therapist. So we have PTs. um, We had an OT, but not anymore. But even just as like a, a professional, sometimes I still feel like, you know, you have to bite your tongue. Sometimes you can't really point out the things that have offended you or when you know, you see one of your white colleagues doing something or saying something that might not be appropriate for a black patient. And you're just like, how do I, how do I bring that up? What do I say? Like, should I say something? Do I say something to my boss? Will I be looked at as, you know, just being way too sensitive? But I think, you know, it's not only like in the graduate programs, it just transfers into your professional life too. And there's sometimes still that imposter syndrome, like, do I belong here? You know, am I even a good enough SLP? Because i don't look like the rest of my colleagues. And I think it just takes a lot of self-talk to put yourself back into perspective and let yourself know, you know, you do belong here. You've worked so hard to be here. And the color of your skin has nothing to do with, you know, your skill level as a clinician too.
1: Lauren, what were, I mean, I'm just kind of interested in that journey because I feel like it's something that I continue to be on myself. Mm-hmm. Right, not only as an early clinician, you have those thoughts of like do I belong here? But then you have all those other factors. So what are like things that you that you have found helpful?
2: Um, so one thing, and I talked about this on my Instagram actually. I do like daily mantras where I literally look myself in the mirror before I go to work and I tell myself like five things, like I'm a great SLP. I'm working to help my patients get better. You know, it's—I mean, it's real cheesy, but it helps me because I'm hearing myself say it. There's that positive self-talk, and that helps me sometimes get through my day. Sometimes you just—you're just exhausted, especially right now with everything going on. And, you know, I—I I do my best to be everything for my patients. And when I see that positive progress, that also helps let me know and reaffirm why I'm here, why I'm doing what I'm doing. Right. And those two things for me are really the biggest things, just being positive, staying positive. And, you know, I also do speak up for myself when I need to. So if something has offended me or something just doesn't go right, I do try and speak up for myself. And that's another big thing is seeing that your voice deserves to be heard. Your voice is loud enough. It should be heard, you know, in a professional setting. So those things have helped me. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I think one of the things that's been helpful for me, because being on a similar journey, um, if there are any students that are listening to this and need some of this, I thankfully have been able to interact with a few people who I've been able to, even if they're not formal mentors, people I can text at any moment and just say, tell me I belong here. Like Mm -hmm. reaffirm that I'm doing the right thing, because some days you feel crazy and you feel out of place, right? And I know that Lauren, you are one of those people, so I don't mean to have people like inundating your Instagram asking for compliments or reassurance. But certainly, you could reach out to either of us, (laughs) right? That you belong here, and that is something that I recently did, Uh, Lauren. I wrote a list of affirmations for myself. Oh, good. I printed them out and set them under my keyboard Mm -hmm. uh, for the computer that I write notes on. Yeah. And every morning I come into work and I move my keyboard to the side and I'll read my affirmations like I belong here. I have the skills to be able to help people. This is where I'm supposed to be. And it does sound cheesy Mm -hmm. and it absolutely is, (laughs) (laughs) but it's helped me not feel so chaotic about the work that I do. And especially in times where it feels like the world outside of my therapy room or my job Mm -hmm. tends to lead to anxiety and stress and Mm -hmm. feelings of being overwhelmed. It it kind of helps as like a centering act.
2: Right. Definitely.
1: I think, um, you know, speaking to my experience in the professional world, I, um, I've i been very, very lucky to work in places that have, I think, been actively anti-racist.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> I say that because I, I don't know that I've ever had to be anti-racist. So I, <laughs> I like, feel like, well, right. yeah, sure. It felt very comfortable as like a brown person to worked there. You know, I did my CF in Madison, Wisconsin, which tends to be very white. Um, but I can even think to... And this is something that I shared on one of the MenSLP collective talks. You know, I had an experience where I was finishing up therapy with a patient. I'm mm, We weren't finishing up. And I was just typing out some notes for them as we were doing therapy. And so I was talking slowly and typing. And the patient was just watching me. And they were like, what? Are you trying to translate from Ebonics? Really? And they were trying to make a joke right? And they were trying to be funny. But that, to me, was not funny, right? And so what I did, and this is the part that surprises a lot of people. And I say that kind of as a question because it doesn't surprise me. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I walked over to the door and I opened the door and I excused them from the therapy room. I said, it was good to see you today. And that's it. And they were like, oh, and they knew what they did because they said, oh, it was just a joke. And I said, okay, it was really good seeing you today. Thank you for coming. And then I stood by the door and then that patient left and it was very awkward. And there was like some uncomfortable feelings and we weren't sure where we were going to go from there. But more importantly than that action, it was the fact that I worked at a place that said that I was allowed to make those decisions for me, right? That I didn't have to put up with a patient being racist to me, that I didn't have to deal with micro or macro aggressions from people that are surrounding me without saying something about it. Right. I was allowed to stand up for myself and not be afraid that my boss or the manager would come back to me and say that I was in the wrong. Right. And so that's another, like, what can we, or what can our white SLPs or non-black SLPs do? It's create environments like that where the speech pathologist, the black speech pathologist, the person of color speech pathologist feels empowered to make those decisions. Right? And I didn't have to ask someone for permission. I made it because I'm the clinician and I was protecting myself and I should feel like I can do that. And I think so often people don't feel that way. So you hear stories of patients saying racist things to clinicians, patients and even other clinicians doing racist things to clinicians and nobody says anything because, well, it's going to come back on me. No, 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 no.
3: <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: Like, what is the environment that we're setting, and are we setting that even before you have a black clinician? That should be the environment for everyone
2: Right I definitely agree. And I think too, I, that that's such an important part is, like you said, establishing that type of environment, a welcoming environment where everybody's voice can be heard, and there is no fear of being retaliated against or you know, being fired or having your caseload taken away. It's just, it's, it's fair for everyone. And I think, unfortunately, there are a lot of workplaces that aren't like that, yeah. um, especially if it is, you know, a clinic or a hospital or a school, wherever it is, where all of the therapists are white. And I think it's sometimes hard for, you know, a staff that is all white to imagine, like, how can we treat a person of color if they're already high, if they are to be hired, you know, how can we envision that when we don't have that right now? But I think it's super important, especially in light of everything going on right now to start having those conversations, like how can we even bring in more people of color to our staff? How can we recruit more people of color? How can we diversify our clinic or our practice? And I think having that diversity also helps with patient retention, because the patients are diverse. So why aren't the clinicians, you know, they want to see people look like them. I know I've had patients come to me and they're like, I'm so glad you're black, honey. I never see anybody that looks like you. <laughs> and I mean, it, but it's true, they've never seen a black speech therapist or a black therapist in general. So it's really important to start having diversity, not even, not so much even at the grad level, grad school level, but even in our clinics, in our professional settings, because I mean, our patients are diverse, so it just makes sense for us to be diverse as well.
3: Can you guys speak a little bit about, you know, I know there's there's all this talk going on, there's been a lot of papers that people have shared about the racial disparities with our patients and how how they're treated differently than than a white patient. I don't know if that's the thing, have you guys read into any of those statistics or have any opinions on that?
2: Yeah, I know for me, I've read a few papers, but I mean, not even just going into the research, just with um, the observation with my clients and even my family members. I know a lot of times I'll have patients come in who are post-stroke and they're on, you know, some type of hypertension medication. And I don't know if it's just like in my area, but I know a lot of times with the Black patients, they, they don't have any instruction of like how long they're supposed to take the medication. Why are they even taking the medication? They don't even know what hypertension is. And I've seen a big, drastic difference between the black patients and the white patients, where the white patients are like, yeah, I'm taking this many milligrams. This is why I'm taking this medication. My doctor told me I should take it this long. It just seems to be this huge disconnect between, like, I guess the, how am I trying to say it? the medical information that black patients receive versus the medical information that white patients receive. And so I always do my due diligence to give that information you know, as much as I can within our scope. But I try to educate our patients because everybody deserves to know about their health. I mean, that's just a basic human right. And as speech pathologists, I mean, obviously we're medical professionals and I think it is in our scope to bring that education and try and close the gap in some of these health disparities too. I have
1: nothing significant to
2: add. <laughs> <Maurice>. <laughs> but it's even too like with family members. I know like my mom, my grandma, my dad, pretty much my whole family has hypertension or diabetes, you know, some, some type of disorder that can eventually lead to stroke. And I think, I mean, we've read about the statistics how stroke disproportionately affects Black people, especially because we have higher rates of hypertension. But there's there's a reason for all of this. There's a reason why, you know, this is happening. And it starts sometimes with the food. You know, a lot of times Black people live in food deserts. We don't have access to the healthiest food. We don't have access to Whole Foods and Trader Joe's and organic produce, or it's just too expensive. And I think there are so many reasons why reasons why health disparities exist, and like I said, we just have to do our job within our scope to continue to try and lessen those health disparities that our patients are facing.
1: I think sometimes you know this this goes to a larger conversation as well. Um, sometimes it feels really overwhelming to think about our field not looking the way that it does. Mm-hmm. Um, And this week, especially seeing some of these graduate programs come out with, you know, we're waiving the GRE, or we're going to intentionally pay for students of color and black students for their, you know, application fees. And I'm like, that's awesome. And I'm really excited for that. We are like a generation away from like making a dent in in our field. And that sometimes feels overwhelming. Yeah, because Mm -hmm. you want change now. And people want to see things change. And we want things to be better. And I think if we can keep our attention on it long enough, (laughs) things can change. Um, But it won't be for a long time. I mean, I think about professors alone. We talk about there aren't enough, you know, Black or people of color professors. How long is it going to take to get a student from undergrad to grad school to PhD to postdoc to junior faculty, to professor, to department head—that is a long, long journey, right? And so it, it takes being committed to that goal. And we may not even see the fulfillment of that within our careers, right? And so I think about some of these health disparities that you know Lauren referred to, and I think, like she said, it starts with her, right? And what can I do to make a difference in this? And I, I have seen some of the materials that lauren has created (laughs) regarding specifically this area and some of the things that impact black patients um and it starts like that right with with your circle and what you can do to help and then we think outside of that and how can we help other people learn and how can we help other people do um you know i think looking at it as a whole it feels too big (laughs) it feels like too grand and then you get the excuse of saying well i can't personally do anything about right? But that's not true. Wow. And we can, right? We start with me. And then I feel comfortable doing that with me. And then I start to think, what other ways can I impact and, and, and kind of influence change?
0: Mm-hmm.
3: I'm all about that. One. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I love to, yeah, I love to change every to
2: change everything up I don't like to do anything by the book
1: so right yeah I think the I know for me that feeling of change comes from being really tired of being sad Mm yeah, and really tired of feeling disappointed yeah and so I want things to change and if I could will it to change I would but that's just not how it works and there aren't enough people of color, and Black people in our field to do it on our own. There just aren't. Right. And there's certainly not enough Black people and people of color in power to enact that level of change. Um, And so it just gets, it feels overwhelming, and you feel exhausted. Because I don't get to just be a speech pathologist, right? I don't get to just be that voice specialist person. I'm also representing like blackness and I'm representing being a black speech pathologist and I'm representing, you know, the one black male that went to that graduate program and you, you it, that becomes exhausting. <laughs> like mm-hmm. it just does. I remember, I think about Instagram and I don't want to speak for Lauren, but this past week felt overwhelming to be okay. a black speech pathologist because you want to reach people and you want to be helpful and you want to connect with people. But I also... So just want to be myself <laughs> yeah. and like do my job and not have to represent so much yeah. and it's grateful we are thankful we're happy thank you for joining right thank you for tuning in it's also extremely overwhelming
3: yeah thank you for framing
2: it like that nice yeah I I agree um I know I had to take a few days like off of Instagram off of Facebook because it was just I had people messaging me like, well, what should I say in this situation or how can I be more cu- more culturally competent? And I, I mean, and like you said, Maurice, it's, it's good that people are asking questions. It's good that this discussion is being had, but, you know, we have to deal with that. We have to keep seeing videos of Black people being murdered in the street. We have to still, you know, do what we need to do for work and for our patients, which, I mean, that's our duty. We're going to do that, but it is a lot sometimes to try and take on all of that it's just like a lot of weight on your shoulders. So I feel like we all just have to take a step back sometimes and just breathe and self care is super important too, but it does become exhausting. But I'm so thankful, like Teresa, for you even providing this this platform for us to talk about this. Um, is is a step, you know, people can hear our voices and people can ask questions and figure out how we can start making more change too. So this is great. I think exactly what you
3: said, Lauren, I know so many people you know, this whole thing is just, I think, really shattered a lot of people's perspectives of racism. Like I said, you know, people are yeah, not racist, but there's, like you said, it's so much it it shattered a lot of people's glass, rosy, rosy glasses they've had on. Um, But yeah, it's like, well, how can we help? What can we do? And, and like you said, there are so many times I'm like, I don't want to humble with these people anymore. Like, they're exhausted <laughs> dealing with this shit to begin with. Like, you know, let alone, you know, what can, you know, I don't know. So I thank you guys for, for coming on here and telling your, you know, this honest, real feelings. And, and, you know, like you said, I think what's just so important is that we don't forget the conversation. And yeah. we don't just, you know, this wasn't just a cool Instagram thing. felt guilty because I didn't jump on the bandwagon right away but it was like I had other like you know, I had other episodes <laughs> set to air but I was like but I want to I, I don't want to just jump on the bandwagon I want to make yeah. a change and I want to keep this going and six months from now I want to make sure that we're still talking about this and we're still having these conversations so I think of course you've said it and I, and I want to just reiterate to everybody that this is just something that can't just go away it wasn't just a cool
2: thing to talk about last week, right? And I
1: don't, I don't want to speak for you know speech pathologists at large, but it's been really exciting to see either petitions going around or emails, or certainly Ash's Instagram comments have been ablaze yeah. um, with some of their <laughs> statements. But when we're talking about you know this is this does go beyond two three weeks a month two months right? This is systemic, yeah. and I think that does involve also keeping the people. Um, who lead our fields responsible for this right if we want to see change then we also need leadership and that also requires people taking a stand for these things and you know it's similar to being a student in a graduate program and you're screaming well we need more diversity you are a student (laughs) Mm -hmm. you can scream all you want but the people in charge got to literally have to step in and change the program right and so When we're talking about, we, in this essence, in this kind of scenario, are the student, right? We work within a field and we work um, within a body of of individuals represented by an organization um, that I hope is feeling the pressure to lead (laughs) constituents, it's, uh, you know, members in a direction that I don't want to say majority because I don't know what the numbers are. A large group of speech pathologists would like to see change. And that is important, and that matters.
3: Mm -hmm. Well, um, you know, without putting you guys on the spot, what would you propose to change with Asha? Like, what would you guys like to see happen? All over. (laughs) Spill the beans, (laughs) Marisa.
1: The podcast ends.
2: (laughs) We can cut anything we need to. It's fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, do you want to go first? Do you want me to go first? Rice? No. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, okay. <laughs> I think the first thing, this is not this is not so much Asha's responsibility, but then again it is I think the one thing that will help diversify the field as a whole is awareness. So I know When I was in high school, I had never heard about speech. And it wasn't until my senior year of high school, I was like, oh, this is speech. This is so cool. I want to do this. But I think it goes, it starts at that level, like trying to reach high school students, middle school students, going into predominantly Black schools and showing these kids what we do, you know, this is what you can do. You can look like me. We can can be Black and we can be in this field and we can be successful. And these are all the things you can do. These are all the places that you can work. And I think it starts there. And I don't know if Asha has some type of template for like a PowerPoint presentation to go into schools and present information about our field. But I think that would be really helpful and going into and touching and reaching these kids so they know that they can major in this, that this is a field and this is an option for them. And I'm hoping that in turn doing that will help to increase the amount of Black students that come into this field but then there's the whole issue of trying to get into grad school and that's like a whole nother topic because we know grad schools aren't that diverse um but I think something else that I'd like to see from ASHA is some type of requirement for a cultural competence course or some type of assessment that has to be taken before you even get your license um because there's a lot of speech therapists out there that are just not culturally competent. I mean, they hear AAE and they're like, this child needs speech therapy. They need to be put in special education or, you know, they just, they just don't have it. Um, They have the clinical skills, but the interpersonal skills aren't there. So something like that, you know, I've been thinking about like, what can Asha do? And I think, again, it just goes along with that whole exhaustion thing. I'm just like, I don't know where to even start. I don't know what to even tell them first. I just know I want to see the change. So I think there are a lot of things that they can do and also advocating more for us as Black speech, speech pathologists. I know I went to one ASHA convention when it was in LA and I was like looking around trying to find someone who looks like me and I'm like, wow, this, I was probably one out of like 50 and there's like thousands and thousands of speech therapists there. But even having more um, seminars at ASHA conventions about cultural competence, you know, being a Black SLP or working with, Culturally diverse populations, you know, just having more of that talk and that dialogue in those spaces as well. And I think, you know, it's like there's been this huge
3: push in the last years to have this new, you know,
2: ethics CEU
3: and now this new supervision CEU. Like, there's no reason that we can't have
2: this new diversity. A lot more than just. Yeah. And one more thing, too. Sorry. We're yeah, sorry. yeah. No. Um, the materials that we use as speech therapists, I know, well, everybody saw like super duper. They were like, "Dump super duper. Yeah. So I'm like, even the creation of more diverse materials, seeing black people, you know, on picture cards or, you know, articulation cards or whatever speech therapists use, being able to see people that look like them. I know I have a deck of picture cards at work right now. Um, that I use a lot with my aphasia clients and they're all white people, all white families. And I mean, I could take the time out to make them myself, but I feel like ASHA being my govern- governing body should be able to make these type of materials. I mean, they know that this is a diverse world. We're going to work with black patients and other patients of color. So it's little things like that too, that really make a difference and make us feel more included in our patients. I know,
1: you know, will probably say very similar things. Um, I think my perspective as a male SLP uh, going to ASHA, I felt like there was, there was a lot of talk in recruiting male SLPs, right? Recruit more men, recruit more men, recruit more men. But it's also possible that men come in with the exact same background and the, the exact same biases as already exists in the field. So what is that doing for our field? Right. I've never completely understood that. And I am a male SLP. Right. And so let's be intentional <laughs> about recruiting people who aren't white. Right. You're going to catch some men in there. Cool. Great. Awesome. You caught me. But let's put the focus on people who aren't men. I don't know for once. That would be great. Right. <laughs> um, no, I, I agree with Lauren. I as you were saying that, when it comes to like materials, I even think of this is gonna seem like um maybe weird example, but you know, when Doc McStuffins came out and it was a a little black girl, physician, like doctor, like that changed the game yeah. in regards to cartoons that children were able to watch. And little black girls and black boys and black children were able to watch themselves on TV as doctors, right? That changes things and you're able to go to target and buy a doc mcstuffin shirt with a little black girl who's a physician right that's crazy that's crazy that is not something i grew up watching (laughs) i had to watch like cartoon rabbits who were voiced by black people not like actual like (laughs) you know stories of i get it's fiction but stuff like that matters it matters it matters it matters and seeing yourself in the field matters Mm -hmm. i i had not met a black male speech pathologist Um, prior to entering graduate school and still i think i personally only know like less than 10 right outside of like the situation of is meeting and interacting with a lot of people through Mbazla. um you just don't you aren't exposed to it and i think that's even more true for other uh, minority kind of race groups within the united states um who never see themselves truly ever? Um, so it's it's tough. Yeah. Kind of went on a little tangent. Asha, what do we want? We want leadership. I mean, I mean, water is wet. Systematic racism is real. It's not a question. We don't need more data, right? You have people telling you it's real. And if you're representing those people, then do the work to represent them. Yeah. And bring the people on that you need to bring on. I think. One of the things that this, this week has certainly showed me is that, like, I know blackness from my own experience. I, I don't study race. There are black people that study race. There are black people that study health disparity. There are black people that study, you know, uh, rates of poverty. And that, like, oh, there, there are black people that do all of that. Pay those black people? to come in and teach you how to do a better job at what you're doing, right? They already exist. They're out there.
3: That's my thing.
1: I can only speak on my experience, but...
3: Your experience matters for you, so thank you. I Sometimes and I feel well, like I'm, saying, well, you know, talking So, so thank you for shutting that down and saying, "Well, this doesn't matter. It's my dang experience." So. Right. People are
1: telling is you it right? it's yes. real. Yeah. yeah,
3: this is yeah. not,
1: it's yeah. not imagined. This is happening, and we're watching it happen. That's what's crazy about it, and I think that's what feels so crazy about being black and in this field is you're like, oh, "What do you? We don't need another lecture on how AAE is not a disorder. We don't need to do that anymore." We've said that, that is like long, stop doing it. You don't have to have more data. We don't just stop. That's like what sometimes feels so frustrating is that you have the same conversation over and over in every couple of years. And I'm sure in two or three years there'll be, unfortunately because systematic change takes time, another video as there already has been of black people being murdered and somebody caught it on their cell phone. It will just continue. And as long as we continue to have the conversation, oh, what can we change? Oh, what can we do? Oh my, we need to pray about it. Oh, we need to think more about it. We need another meeting. Sure. Yeah. Everyone else is exhausted, but have your meetings, have your talks, have another, you know, town hall. Thank you for the town hall without doing anything.
2: (laughs) (laughs) And also too, like piggybacking off of that. I know Ashley just sent this email where they're wanting black SLPs to share their experiences. It's like some kind of listening session, I think is what it's called. And I'm just like, okay, you're going to listen to our voices and our experiences, which is good, but then what? You know, what is the purpose? What's the action going to be after that? I I might actually email them back and say that. Like, what is the purpose of doing this? I mean, it's good that people will hear our experiences, but then what will be the action behind it? What are you going to do to try and change th- these experiences and you know, continue to amplify our voices. And I think, I don't know, I, I think Asha just got really scared. I don't know who put that who put that initial statement out, but I think they got really scared because of all the backlash that they got. And they were like, let's just put something else out that- um, well, I just think it was a, probably a white
3: woman that put that statement out. Have no <laughs> yeah. expi- like that was the first thing I read. I was like, well, this is written by a white woman that has no
2: clue what's you, actually sure. going on. Right, right. So. <laughs> And I'm sure it's, you know, it was comfortability, you know, not wanting to step on anybody's toes or offend people, but it's like as black people, we're like, just say black lives matter. Yeah. Just say it. It's yeah. we're yeah. communication specialists. Right. And um, you know, I would like to see something in the next Asha Leader about all of this, about how we're gonna make change. What is Asha gonna do to start implementing change? I would love to see that in the next edition of the Asha Leader. And I'm I'm hoping that something like that will be included.
3: Yeah. I think there was just so much backlash cuz people started pulling all sponsorships from the next conventions and then, yep. you know, once it hit yeah. their wallets, they were like, "Oh crap, I guess we better acknowledge what's really going on here." Okay. Yeah. Yep, yep.
1: I don't know if I'm going to say this in one solid fluid thought. So, I've, you know, also interacted with people that are new to this, new to Black Lives Matter, new to, you know, police brutality, new to Um, the lack of uh, black folks and people of color in the field of speech pathology, right? And I think often people want to be convinced that they want to see enough posts or they want to hear enough experiences. So they want you to share and they want you to talk and they want you to share. And actually this last week has really challenged me personally. What minority groups and minority populations can I just believe? I don't need to see the data. I don't need them to prove it to me. I don't need to see them cry and hear their pain and read the terror. I can just believe them, right? And then change the way that I act to make this world a better place for them, right? And I think that is a challenge that I think many of our colleagues can just take, right? So I'm really happy that. You know, the one or two Black people in your life don't agree with Black Lives Matter, fine, great. But is it possible that you can see (laughs) how other people are hurting and they want change and just believe them? I'm really happy that you or a family member of yours, a parent, a husband, a cousin, are a police officer, and they're a good person. I'm happy for that. Is it possible that you can just believe That other people are not having that experience. You don't need more data. You don't need to see the videos. You can just believe them, right? That's it. And then start to change the way the world works to make it a better place for people. Mm -hmm. And that's that was a challenge to me. There's so many things that I don't know, and so many people groups that I have not interacted with, right? There's so much that I, I can't represent. I'm only one person, right? I can't experience everyone else's experience. I can believe that it's happening. And then just like create a world that is more fair and more just for them to exist in. And that's it. Yeah.
3: Those and it's I don't yeah, that yeah. for it to be beautiful. But
2: it was. That was beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> and it's true too. And I think like, you know, people have to be okay with being uncomfortable too and having uncomfortable conversations. And you know, Maybe asking uncomfortable questions, but that that causes change and that causes growth too. So it, it definitely starts there with those meaningful conversations.
3: I know that um,
1: I don't know if this is a helpful story, so cut it if you don't need it. <laughs> but it was the um, the the what I shared in the MedSOP collective, just about you know my journey learning you know about male privilege as a male SLP and that I was not born you know uh, very aware of the fact that this world is terrible generally to <laughs> to women right and um, you know even recognizing that as a male SLP I exist in the field of healthcare and within our graduate programs with a level of privilege right and that doesn't mean that I don't have women in my life that I respect and that I love um, and that raised me and that made me the person that I am, right? All of my speech pathology mentors are like a group of badass human beings who are women, right? But I still am existing and living in a world that prioritizes the needs and like of men over women. That once again, that doesn't mean that I don't have women friends, but I am benefiting from the system that prioritizes the needs of men. And so what am I actively doing to make sure that this world is a more fair place for everyone, right? And so I I mentioned in the post that I started off by just, I spent two years only reading books written by women and specifically women of color because I just wanted a different perspective that wasn't a man, right? When you grow up in the school system that like inundates us with that. And then I started to give money and, and every month I, they're not large donations, but small monthly donations That go towards these organizations that support the rights and the healthcare um, for women, right? And I get a little email or a text message that says it's going there. And that reminds me of, wow, I need to be living my life in a way that not only my pocketbook goes to it, but it's like my actions go towards that as well. And then you start to pay attention to the systems in the world that help make this place a better place for everyone, right? Because it's easy for me not to think about it. I have to be intentional about it or I will unintentionally not think about other people. Unfortunately, that's like being a human, right? A little mm-hmm. selfish, but. <laughs> <laughs> and so even if it's small change, and I think, you know, what Lauren said, it's you start with us and you go from there. Mm-hmm. Help and educate along the way, but.
3: Yeah, I think, I think that's such a great point, Maurice. If people can just donate, you know, like you said, like once a month to a, a, something that's meaningful to them, mm-hmm. then you at least acknowledge it. Like I said, I'm just so afraid that this is just going to be a fad and be done, you know, and I I just want to make sure that I do my part to make sure this is not, and and we keep having these conversations. And I think that, you know, monthly kind of check in like, Hey, are you still actively pursuing this? Are you still leading this type of lifestyle that you committed
2: on social media that you were going to? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah.
3: Yeah.
2: And I know personally, I'm going to make sure I do my part to make sure that this is not a fad because this this is my life. This is real life for me. And right. not only as a black speech therapist, but just as a black person, as a black woman. So I mm. will make sure that all of my followers know, like, this is not just going to stop in a couple of weeks. We have to keep <laughs> the fight. We have to keep making change. Um, Cause that's how the change will continue. So, mm-hmm. yeah.
1: I've like loved following And those are people that I followed before and people that I discovered, but especially the black women kind of representing for truly an entire group of humans (laughs) online. I can't imagine the weight of that, Um, but it's been really awesome to watch and experience and learn from. Um, So Lauren, you know, shout outs to you. I mean, you're like goals.
2: Thanks. Stop. No, that's
1: you. I know. I'm like watching you and I'm like, what is going on? How does someone do it all? Um <laughs> I try to figure it out myself. I don't
2: know. <laughs> and so it's
1: uh it's all those it's all those things. And there's there's just some really awesome voices um coming out. Um, yeah you know, shout out to the black speechy, you know, a personal friend of mine, Amanda, um, who's been doing some really, really incredible work and I you know, I look at her. Um just graduating, you know, grad school, she has like a full page spread in the newest ASHA leader, Mm -hmm. right? Investing in change makers. Yeah. Investing in people that have a vision and that want to see new and that want to see different, but also encouraging those students that like, you don't have be in the asha leader to feel like you belong right because <laughs> that's not everyone's experience and that's okay um yeah yeah awesome this has been a wonderful
3: conversation i can't thank you guys enough for any anything else you want to keep, it now? Any folks?
2: keep doing the work yeah keep doing the work And for the other Black SLPs who might be listening, you know, keep, um, I don't wanna word it. Sorry, you can cut this part out, I'm just thinking. Um, Keep making yourself visible, representation matters. And when other, you know, students or just other people see you, it inspires them. So keep making yourself visible and keep being a light because we need that right now. That's so important. I
1: know for, For me, one way that I've been able to do that is actually participating in the ASHA STEP program. So I know that that won't be open for a little while. And ah, shout out to Lauren's mentorship program that she started. Um, I'll let you talk about that because I don't know anything about that. But um, (laughs) the ASHA STEP process, I've been able to connect with other Black students and I've only done it two years, but Amanda was actually my mentee my first year. And now I'm able to mentor another Black male you know, soon-to-be speech pathologist, Um, and it's a great way of just connecting with other students, um, you know, as professionals, and really kind of offering guidance. I think the students are there, and it feels overwhelming to take on one more thing, Um, but then I I think about myself and not having that experience, you know. I I remember every time I, like, don't want to post something online, because I'm definitely the type of person that doesn't necessarily like people knowing a lot about me, (laughs) Um, which people would be surprised by, but... Um, I think like, how much would this have changed my life if I had seen me in high school, right? Like how much would this have changed the game if I saw someone that looked like me and presented like me, you know, a queer black male speech pathologist, like how much would that have just changed the game? Um, And so I appreciate what you said, Lauren. Yeah, Yeah. visible and you're able to represent that for someone else. Right. Yeah,
2: that's very
3: true. Yeah, please please share your on your mentor program.
2: Yeah, so it's called Heart to Heart and it is a speech language pathology mentorship program. And so my idea, my vision behind this was just to have a small knit group, tight knit group where the mentor and the mentee are essentially matched together just based on their clinical interests and you know what the mentee wants to see out of their career. And I know personally as a student, I wish that I had a mentor earlier like as an undergrad I think it really would have helped me more in my graduate career as well but I wanted to make a safe space where students can be inspired by a mentor and ask questions and vent and just have someone to help them through that journey of becoming a speech language pathologist because especially as a black student as a minority student it can be hard but it's hard for all of us um, so just to have someone there at